Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Art Wright, and I am the senior pastor at Williamsburg Baptist Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. And we are talking with Barrett Owen, who's the pastor of Waynesboro Baptist Church uh, in Waynesboro, Virginia. Uh, Barrett, I want to wonder if you want to just introduce yourself briefly uh, before we jump into some conversation. Sure. Uh, Barrett Owen, and uh, I am the senior pastor here at First Baptist in Waynesboro, Virginia, which is very near Charlottesville, Harrisonburg, Stanton, mm. Virginia, right central Virginia. I've been here for almost six years, and uh, we absolutely love it. We love the church. We love the people. We're raising a family here, and uh, we feel like we can make a difference in the world right here in Waynesboro. That's awesome. Yes. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, so, we're talking politics and, and churches today. Uh, I, so I'm a brand new pastor. I've only been at, at Williamsburg Baptist for not even two months now. And, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic and one of the most brutal election seasons in, in recent history or maybe all of history uh, for our country. But so January 6th was a significant date for so many of us in uh, in the life of our country, and also as people of faith, uh, as uh, you know, this this crowd or mob descended upon the Capitol, and violence ensued. And so, I had to preach the next day. We recorded on January seventh for our our pre recorded um, worship. I have seen a lot of pastor friends and acquaintances struggling on social media and in the wake of the violence uh, on January 6th, just wondering how in the world do we as preachers respond and how do we as pastors respond? And then how do we call our churches to respond to this sort of situation? And how do we navigate this sort of complicated, challenging political context? So being a new pastor, I reached out to CBF Virginia and said, I need someone to talk to as I sort of wrap my head around what it means to respond as pastor in this political situation. And uh, Mark Snipes sent me to Barrett Owens. I'm really grateful for you taking time to talk uh, today. We we know that a lot of, um, I would say, I think it's fair to say we're both young pastors uh, or, or young-ish maybe, but uh, you know, a lot of young and and older seasoned pastors struggle with politics and church. And we know that a lot of pastors leave because of, you know, the, the way in which politics uh, sort of puts them in a hard spot uh, as pastor, as we sort of navigate different perspectives in the church. But I, I wonder if we can begin as we wade in, if you, Barrett could just tell me a little bit about your experience of January 6th, uh, what was going on for you? How did you immediately react and how did your church react? Yeah, uh, thanks. And um, I don't want to pretend like there's any any easy answers uh, here. And so, you know, we can get into nuts and bolts and practice and thought and we can even talk philosophically. But I'm just really, really well aware that this is a complicated issue and uh, it it has a lot of different vantage points, a lot of entry points. Uh, And so i just holding that, I can tell you what my personal experience was. I was glued to the TV mm. uh, like everybody else was. I, you know, I saw, you know, I get news alerts on my phone. Uh, you know, if there's breaking news, it pops right. up as a notification on my phone. And I just kind of kept getting one after the other. And it was Wednesday and I was very much working uh, in the afternoon. And I have to work from home Wednesday afternoon uh, just because of my kids' uh, hybrid school schedules and my wife works. Uh, and so I was I, I typically do the majority of my writing from home on Wednesdays mm-hmm. in the afternoon. And so that's what I was doing. And I kept getting these notifications. So luckily, I was at home near a TV. And so I immediately turned on the news and I just was glued to yeah. it for the, for the rest of the day and uh, just kind of couldn't believe what it was that we were witnessing at first, you know, it, it felt like, oh, this is, you know, this is some a riot that, or at least a protest that got out of hand. Uh, but then as the evening kind of uh, kept going, 
you just started really asking yourself questions, you know, where are the, the where's the national guard? Where's yeah. the police? Like where, where, like, why is this still happening? Why is this a thing? And then, you know, Washington DC put a 6 PM uh, curfew out. I mean, it's one of the first times ever. And that's massively important uh, that they, I mean, they shut the city down over this. Then you start learning that this is the first time since the war of 1812 that anyone <laughs> has ever breached the Capitol. And you realize how historic this kind of moment is. And so I'm, I, I think I was I was a full participant like everybody else in the country, just watching it unfold in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh, you know, I was talking to my wife yesterday. I feel like uh, this is January 11th now that we're talking, still absorbing the meaning and significance of a hurricane hits the East Coast. You know, that's happened dozens of times in our lifetimes and we can sort of understand or process what's happening. But this is, you know, something that's entirely unusual. Uh, you know, and, and so it's hard to sort of digest that. Yeah. And so you, you asked about my church, how did they react? Yeah. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm as a pastor, I'm kind of always reading the tea leaves and trying to feel where the emotional energy is. And people do reach out to me, but it's not like I got, I mean, it's not like everyone stops what they're doing. And it's like, I need to know what my pastor thinks about this. Like it's more just a, uh, an informal uh, social media kind of digest because we're not, I'm sitting in my office right now, but our, our church is not a hundred percent open. We're not worshiping in right. person right now. We're all virtual. And uh, so I don't see a lot of my parishioners. So a lot of the engagement is through text message, emails, social media. Uh, and so what I just was absorbing from uh, just kind of the, the atmosphere uh, is that uh, my church felt similarly to the way I did. Uh, and that this is, this is a big deal a really big deal. And it beyond partisan divide, like th- this has caused the entire country and obviously all of us to pause and we hmm. need to pay attention to what's happening. And so I, I kind of felt that that was the energy of what I felt coming from the church is that they agree. This is a big deal. Absolutely. Yeah. I got a few emails and uh, certainly saw quite a bit on social media. There's, in in the immediate wake of it, um, sort of interesting from my perspective. I wasn't on. I wasn't watching at all. I was only listening on NPR because I was I was working on my car of all things. <laughs> and so honestly, it, I went in the next morning and sort of rewrote my sermon, uh, which was on Jesus's baptism <laughs> of all things, uh, and John the Baptist. We're on the narrative lectionary. John the Baptist calling people to repent. Um, but it wasn't really until later Thursday and Friday that I started seeing and absorbing the images uh, where, you know, white supremacist symbols and flags. And my sort of immediate response as an Enneagram nine is I'm a, a peacemaker. And so I, you know, sort of want to hold the tension and say, all right, let's talk about this. Let's, you know, figure out how we can build bridges. But as I have absorbed more of those symbols, I wonder if maybe that's not the right approach. Um, we did have, I'm curious what, what your church did. We, we ended up having a, a impromptu prayer gathering via zoom on Thursday evening uh, for our church and a, a number of people gathered and we simply prayed for peace and understanding and so forth, but also with this awareness that on the other side of prayer, we felt like God was calling us as individuals and as people of faith to respond in some way. But we felt it was important first to pray and to listen and gather as community um, before before we, you know, could sort of figure out what that next step was. So Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, and we did something very similar here. And I've actually, uh, on in a couple of days, I will get with 11 other ecumenical pastors in the community and we're going to plan a, a prayer service a virtual prayer service for the entire community as well uh that it'll be pre-recorded but it'll go out to all of our congregations as a a stance that an ecumenical group of pastors are calling you to to prayer as well and so i i think that's great i immediately put out a, a statement to the church i felt like you know this is kind of like i just want to be i want you to hear from your pastor in the midst of all of this and yeah. um, uh, and it, and along with that, offered prayers for people uh, and for the nation and continued to offer that in our worship service on Sunday as well. So I, very similar to you. 
That's awesome. Yeah. As I was sort of in the immediate aftermath of it, reflecting, um, you know, in the Christian contemplative tradition, there's sort of this understanding, um, you know, uh, and sometimes misunderstanding of contemplation on the one hand and action on the other hand. But I feel like in the best of the Christian tradition, we start in contemplation and move to action. And so that was, that was sort of how I navigated that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's smart. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not, you can't really have one without the other effectively. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, you can't, you can't just pray. You can't, that can't right. be all it is. If prayer is not leading you to some sort of formal life change or action, then you're not doing it right. But if you're not, if you're just responding and reacting constantly and it's not grounded in something that is, that is deeply spiritual coming from kind of the source of life from within you, then that's, who knows what you're doing and yeah. how effective it is. So I, I agree. I think it's great what you're saying. I think, yeah, I think that um, I felt that tension between wanting to make an immediate knee jerk reaction uh, and not reacting. And yeah, so that's, yeah, it, that's, that's where we landed. So uh, can I ask you what your sermon was about this past? Did, I yeah. mean, did you rewrite? Did you, how do you, how did you navigate that in the midst sure. of? Yeah, so we planned about six months in advance. And so last summer, I had planned, uh, honestly, uh, just began the planning process for 2021. And, you know, I've got everything uh, scripted out. The sermons are not are not written, but they are bulleted and, and have, you know, paragraphs of, of where we're going, but uh, through Pentecost right now. Oh, and wow. So I, yeah, so I know... I know kind of like where the movements are and we, the way that we do it is we start with the lectionary, mm-hmm. uh, especially Advent through Pentecost. I'm, I'm very, pay very much close attention to the lectionary, but then during the ordinary time uh, we venture a little bit away from it, but using it kind of as a guide. Uh, mm-hmm. And so right now we're in epiphany. So we're, we're smack down in the middle of Jesus's ministries. And right. so that, I knew that was happening when I was looking months ago, when I was looking at uh developing sermon series, I try to find ways that you can then label and name uh, a sermon series based on what the lectionary texts are. And so right now, what just felt very important to us months ago uh, is that following the election, moving into Advent, uh, what is the best church response in terms of where the energy of epiphany leads us? And so our sermon series right now is called Loving Your Neighbor. Hmm. Uh, and so it's just different ways in which to love your neighbor. And, uh, I wanted, and this is way, I think way a little more technical than you wanted to know, but this is just kind of the Go thought process. The, during Christmas tide, we had that weird Sunday that was still part of Christmas. A lot of, on January 3rd, I think a lot of people went ahead and jumped to epiphany and mm-hmm. used the Matthew two text. I didn't, I used that as an opportunity to give like a theological reflection of neighbor. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, what I think the incarnation does for us in terms of helping everyone see that everyone is a child of God, blessed and beloved, and therefore, you know, everyone is our neighbor. And so all every and so it was kind of a theological reflection of where this sermon series was going, which meant I made the decision to wait to do Epiphany this Sunday, this past Sunday on the tenth. So my sermon text was Matthew two. I would, okay. and so I oh, and I chose that back in June. Uh, you know, wise so man, and Herod, I, King Herod. <laughs> yeah, and so I I made the correlation that what happened on January sixth uh, very much felt like something Herod would do if he were alive today. Uh, I did not say who was Herod, uh, but I very much made made sure people understood the context that if a man in Herod's position became paranoid at the end of his life so much that he was willing to slaughter the lives of anyone that stood in his way of losing power. Hmm. Uh, and so he was ready to kill children uh, and the, the, the holy massacre of the innocent. And so right. I mean, it is a uh, or the massacre of the holy innocent. And it was a, a horrible time uh, to the point where Jesus' family had to retreat to Egypt, if you follow the story in Matthew, and, um, and barely getting out alive. God showing up in a dream, telling the Magi to go home another way because this paranoid leader is ready to kill to stay in power. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I mean, that it's a one-to-one correlation here. Uh, I like mean, like we, we literally have, have sent 
legions of people to the, you know, to the, the one place that is going to dethrone Herod. Mm. Uh, that's what I, that's what I felt like I was witnessing on the sixth and it was being celebrated as if this was the right move. And it just felt like such a, it, it made me realize that how unique scripture is to be able to take something that took place 2000 years ago and it still manifests itself. It still reflects for us. The Holy spirit still is breathing life into our everydayness with the stories of old. Uh, and so I, I, I very much leaned into it and I said the actions of January 6th were the actions of Herod mm-hmm. uh, and that the, there is, there are people who are planting their flag in a Christian nationalistic uh, mindset and that Christian nationalism would have been birthed by Herod, not Jesus. Mm-hmm. It is, there's nothing Christian about Christian nationalism. And there's, and there's nothing Christian about what we saw, even though Christian flags were flying in the state right. capital next to a noose. And so right. I mean, it is, I mean, it is an unbelievable scene of civil religion gone wrong. <laughs> and so I, you know, and I, I just named it. It just felt very important to name uh, now that's where I think this is where it gets, it, it gets tough for a pastor. Um, uh, and because you have to be able to say hard truths as a pastor. Uh, but I, I heard a long time ago, uh, there's a pastor, Chuck pool. Uh, a lot of people know him in, in CBF moderate Baptist life. I, get, I heard him give a lecture on how you say difficult things. And I've always remembered this line. He, he said it over and over. If you have something to say that's both dangerous and true, try to say it softly uh, and, re- and realize the people that you're saying it to aren't, aren't the evil ones. <laughs> They're not, you know, how do you say hard truths, prophetic truths in a, in a, to a community that you love and that you know it's going to be difficult what you say? How do you say it in a way that they can hear you and it doesn't feel like you're yelling at them. <laughs> and, and that, I think, it, it's, it's hard. It's yes. it something I think a pastor needs to be very careful of. And what I held in my mind is I know I'm going to call the actions of January 6th uh, out. Right. And I know that I'm going, I'm going to make the correlation that what Herod did 2,000 years ago is very similar to what we're seeing today. Uh, and it really does stem uh, from an evil mindset that is circulating around power and control. And now our context, that's, there's even more layers. I think there's a real conversation about race and whiteness. And, you know, and, and so there's, it's multi-layered here. I don't want to make it, I don't want to oversimplify this, but you have got to be able to say this truth in a way uh, that is soft uh, and that people right. can, can, can hold it with you and they don't feel like you're like yet like stabbing them in the back. Uh, and so that is a tough line to be prophet and priest. Yeah. I think one of the things that was lost for me listening to January 6th on NPR rather than watching was I didn't immediately see all of the, you know, Jesus saves flags mixed with white supremacy symbols. And I, I feel like, you know, we do as part of our role as prophet and congregation is to to say the way of Jesus is one of love and acceptance for all people. You know, the way of Jesus has nothing to do with violent resistance or, or violent revolution. Quite the opposite, in fact, is what we see, you know, when Jesus goes to the cross. Yeah. You know, I feel like part of our role is to say these people do not represent Jesus or Christianity and they're misguided in their appropriation of those things. Although they may believe Jesus is Lord of their life. <laughs> right. And you don't get to, we don't, we don't get to say otherwise, uh, yeah. but their actions definitely were not in the spirit of, of Jesus or, right. or Christianity. Uh, it was definitely in the spirit of power and control. And I mean, what, you know, what we saw, uh, white nationalists, uh, neo-Nazis, and uh, that saying, I, I understand what the verdict of the country is, and I'm not going to adhere to it. 
I'm going to show you who's boss. I will enter into the Capitol building and I will, we will make our authority and presence known because we're ultimately who is in charge. Not, not the system is not in charge. We are. And that is, that's not, there's nothing Christian about that. Yeah. I, (laughs) yeah. So what I, what I hear you saying, um, you know, between that and a, a few minutes ago, there is this sort of dual function of pastor uh, or, or, multi, you know, we wear a lot of hats, right? Yeah. We are, we honestly, are... your church did not hire you to be a prophet. Hmm. Uh, and, I, and I was not hired to be a prophet. Hmm. We were hired uh, because the church feels like that expression of faith matters to the lives of the people connected to it. And a pastor that is teaching them gospel and loving them and marrying their grandkids and burying their grandparents and uh, and baptizing their 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 teenagers. I mean, that is that w- they felt like a spiritual presence within the life that they live mattered so much to them that they wanted to invest their resources and money to hire us to put us in a position to be Christ among them. Right. They, they too are Christ. They didn't. It was it never crossed their mind. And I, maybe it did, but I'm assuming it didn't. It never crossed their mind that we really want this person to come in and to yell at us and to, <laughs> to be prophetic to us, to remind us on a weekly basis that we're idiots and we're wrong or we've misinterpreted the gospel. That is not what they hired us to do yet our job is so multifaceted. You're right. We wear so many hats. One of those hats is that we are listening to the spirit of the living God and then offering what we hear to a community that we love. And so in so many ways, we are a medium, a midwife, if you will, that just helps Mm -hmm. transfer life from one end of the spectrum to the other. And it is, it is a, powerfully uh, humbling role, uh, but at times it causes us to have to say things that are challenging. And I think I would like for our parishioners to know it's challenging for us too, uh, because it forces us to do something that systems hate. Uh, Individuals can do what I'm about to say, but I think systems really struggle and church systems, culture systems, uh, you know, whatever organizations are, are out there. Uh, and that is the ability to self-actualize. Hmm. Uh, we like the status quo because we like being a part of the status quo. Mm-hmm. But the role of a prophet, hmm. in my opinion, is self-critique. That It's not that you are doing it wrong. It's that we are doing it wrong. Uh, and... I honestly see that over and over again in the Old Testament. It's just like over and over where it's the people from the inside are saying, hey, people at the highest levels, we're getting this wrong. We're not, we need to change. And there are times where prophets are are, are very much pointed towards the other side. And we can and we can nuance this. We can break Israel into two separate northern and southern kingdoms. And we know that sometimes there was a southern prophet that went to the northern kingdom to tell them, hey, the Assyrians are coming. You probably should change your ways. And I understand, I understand that it can be nuanced. But ultimately, it's people on the inside telling insiders we need to change. And every one of the prophets were murdered. <laughs> so because... <laughs> oh, great. The, I, because... And, and I'm I'm just kind of reflecting on the role of the prophet in scripture. Yeah. Because organizations don't want to self-actualize. They like the comfort mm-hmm. of being uh, uh, the status quo. Yeah. And so when we have, when we are challenged as pastors to offer a prophetic word as an insider to the insiders, we have to understand that it people are going to be it's going to jar people uh, because we are asking them whether we even realize it or not we are asking them to self actualize mm-hmm. and that is deeply spiritual work that i would argue most christians don't do 
So that's the contemplation part of what you were talking about earlier. Sure. I'm just not sure we're very good at that. Yeah. Uh, offering critique on ourselves. It, it does feel like the church, if, if anyone should be able to be prophetic, it should be the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, that offering like, hey, we're getting this wrong. Like, and, but that is like the last place where people want to be told they're getting it wrong. Right. Church, they want to be blessed when they go to church. They want to know their life has purpose and meaning. They want to know that the way that they think that their status quo is, is good, that they're not evil people, and that they don't, want to, they don't want to be told, I'm not evil, but I need to change. They don't want to be told that. Right. That's the inability to self-actualize which that is what the role of the prophet does, which is the role we have to play at times, but it creates tension. Absolutely, yeah. I think my challenge, um, I don't know how much you know about this congregation, but I would characterize it as a left-leaning congregation. You know, we're in a a college town, fairly, you know, academically minded. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I would, I think you know, this, this church, the heart is very good of these congregants. Um, and my challenge is to try to hold the tension between um, desire and urge to respond and yet try to create space for people that may not agree with us. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, me and my congregation could all just, just easily stand and shout and say, why are you all being idiots <laughs> to, to use some of your verbiage yeah. to, the, to the rest of the, you know, United States or whatever. Um, and so the, the tension that I find is myself wondering is that, you know, yes, I want, I want to join you in that prophetic speech, but I also feel that tension of wanting to, to hold back a little bit and create some sort of middle ground where we can have dialogue too. I, th- I think that that's, that's, and that, and that for me is where the role of pastor comes in because um, I have a hard time believing that it's okay for pastors or preachers to, to, to say things that drive people away from congregations. And that's, you know, again, I'm an Enneagram nine. I want us to find a way to navigate through this together. Uh, and that's sort of where my heart and my head go the, to, to try to create that um, not neutral ground so much as middle ground where we can dialogue and grow together. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I mean, you can't, we, we are not called to be prophets all the time. We are very much also called to balance that as being pastor. And I, you have to, you have to be able to be someone where people feel safe to come to you or the space that you create is safe. If you're calling, if the prophetic challenge is you're asking people to self critique, then it needs to be safe that they do it. Uh, if they feel not safe uh, because of the words that you're using or the space that you're creating, then I think as pastors, we're getting that wrong too. Uh, and so I think there's a, there is a theological conversation here that just kind of undergirds all of this that I, I love the Enneagram. I'm glad you're, you're using that language. I, I believe one of the the gifts I think the Enneagram offers us is that it blesses every single ego in the world by saying you have space in this world. You're not wrong for who you are. There are that you belong within the network of humanity uh, and I love that because that fits theologically with what I believe the gospel says is that we Absolutely. are all God's beloved uh, and that we all were marked uh, with, the, with the mark of the divine and that we bear within us uh, a reflection of the divine. Uh, so we all matter. Uh, and so as a pastor, you have to be able to, to create space in which people feel safe and that they matter and that their voice or their confusion uh, can, it can be held. And that's the role of the pastor is that you can you can hold with them uh, their pain or their angst uh, or their confusion about where they are in their spiritual journey. Uh, And so there's this really plays into what we what we saw January 6th, because now people are confused. Like, what does it mean? What do I do? What is what do how do we then respond? And so the pastor 
can't just be pointing fingers at everybody saying, this is everybody's fault. And uh, other than mine, uh, or that if you would have been more self-actualizing, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, That's not going to land well. We're going to have to create space that holds them. Now, here's the caveat to that. We are not called to be all things to all people either. Uh, Yeah. I can create space to invite people to the table, but I have to leave room for those people to reject the invitation. Uh, and I can't go chase after them and be like, don't, don't you see, I'm trying to be a good pastor. Let me be a good pastor. Come <laughs> sit at my table and let me talk. Uh, and I think we have to let people just be angry at the church and that we're not going to be able to fix everyone's solution or everyone's questions with solutions. Uh, and not everyone wants to be held in space with us. And so people may reject the church because of January 6th. And that is a reality that we can't fix. We have to, we have to be authentic and true to ourselves in the midst of our own preaching, right? We can't, you know, be someone we're not to people that might not, uh, might reject what we feel like God is saying to us or through us. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a that's a kind of a different conversation uh, but it, it's equally as important to the role of pastor is that if if you are going to stand up and you're uh, you have to feel that like, when you speak that it is coming from a deep well mm-hmm. of truth and that this is you're not you're not just getting tossed in the wind here and you're just responding to whatever the emotional outcry of social media is or the news, or you're becoming a talking head at, at a level that's really beyond your pay grade. Like we are, we have to be spiritually speaking uh, so deeply rooted in who we are in Christ that when it is time to, to speak and to reflect that it, it is bubbled up from a well that has that is uh, nurtured, and that we are that we're, we're not. We might be angry, but when it's our turn to speak, we understand how to communicate uh, through that anger and not just lash out at people. And that we we have to have depth to us. We can't just be this shallow, overreactive presence that's just shouting on social media. Uh, it has to come from a deep sense of a well. Uh, and that's a spiritual uh, practice. And that, that too is the role of pastor. I'm going, I'm going to be, uh, I'm, you know, I'm in this now too. I'm affected by January 6th. I'm hurt by it. I'm confused. Yeah. I don't know exactly what the next response is for us politically. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm worried there's going to be an attempted assassination on our Congress people. And so I, you know, I, you know, I have all of these thoughts that run through my head like everybody else does. But I also have to live in a way that is deeply rooted to a spiritual tradition and a faith that helps me process. And so that that is also the role of the pastor, too. Uh, and it affects kind of what our outward appearance is. It, it's maybe a good reminder to me and to other pastors and, and really to all Christians that if we wait until January 7th to start nurturing spiritual practices, it's probably too late. This is... Yeah. Yeah, this is something that, you know, needs to be um, part of part of who we are in, in order to um, sort of um, feel like we do have that deep, deep well of um, life and goodness and wholeness to draw upon in these uh, life shaking or earth shaking events. Yeah, I uh, so I met with a guy yesterday who was at the rally and oh, okay. uh, yeah, he, uh, <laughs> you know, uh he was was he he worked he is a uh, kind of a, a handyman and he was my one of the people in my community that I live he was installing a mailbox yesterday and so he was wearing a trump hat and i was running through the neighborhood and uh he he flagged me down just to say hi he was a very friendly guy and i paused and uh he asked he, he initiated it he asked if i'd seen the news about what had happened over the last week and i was like hard to miss. And he doesn't, he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know I'm the senior pastor of a church. And, right. uh, but he just wanted me to know I was there. I was at the rally. Oh. And I was like, fascinating. Are you, <laughs> were you safe? Was my first question. He was like, Oh yeah. And I said, well, why did, what compelled you to go? 
And he said, I wanted to hear my president speak. He went to the rally. Mm -hmm. And when he was there, he was told at the rally, I now need to go to the Capitol. And so then he he marched to the Capitol. And he told me that he was on the side of the Capitol where there was a lot of laughter. There was not a lot of pushing, shoving. The police were 50 to 70 feet up the staircase. They stayed at the bottom. And that part didn't make the news. Okay. He did not know that mobs of people on the other side of the building had infiltrated the rotunda. He had no clue until he got home hours later. And so he was one of tens of thousands of people who were present because of their, uh, because they wanted to be, to hear the president of the United States speak. Uh, And then he got caught up in the whirlwind of things. And I said, well, I know this wasn't you, but the people who did get inside the rotunda, what was their goal? And his response to me was, I have no idea. They're idiots. That's what he said. <laughs> That's what he said. And so here's a Trump supporter who, you know, that is very much wanted to be at a historical event for him, uh, this rally that the president is holding at the end of his term. Uh, he may never get to hear the president speak ever again. Right. He was only two and a half hours away. So he drove up there to be a part of it. And, uh, and he just reflected on that for me. He, he was not there to be vindictive. He was not going to try to capture the vice president to hang them like that was which others obviously wanted to do which is extremely concerning right Uh, but that's not why he was there as i was talking with him it it just made me realize i so easily want to demonize every single person who was there that my mind immediately jumps to that that they are irreconcilably evil Uh, and they are very much not and so that they too are children of God who are, have the mark of the divine in them, uh, who have bought into a lie uh, of, you know, whatever the lie is, uh, but it has shaped the core of their worldview so much that they can't see a difference between their actions and what they hold as faith. And so, you know, we, we have terms for this, you know, civil religion, uh, and it is, or Christian nationalism, and it is deeply concerning stuff. Uh, but when you get to the individual, you realize that they are, they are more lost than they are uh, uh, angry, or they are, they are more confused than they are determined. Uh, and that it's a, it, but that breeds a mob mentality. I mean, it, I mean, it's why we choose Barabbas over Jesus. Hmm. If you, we asked every hmm. individual who was present at Jesus's uh, when he was being uh, convicted, I don't think anyone would say Barabbas was clearly the better person. They ju- it's just the mob mentality that overtakes you. And this guy was swept up in it. Right. Is he evil? No, he's not. And so I, how, as a pastor, do I continually hold others in unconditional positive regard. Uh, it is, it is hard and it, ha- uh-huh. and it has to come from a deep theological reflected self-criticized place in my soul that knows that we are all broken, but we are also all made in the image of God. And so the, but then here's the real, and so I can, I'm, I'm kind of preaching in, at this point, but the rub here for me, Art, is what then comes next? Hmm. And that is a very deeply hard question to answer. And so I'm like you on Thursday, I recorded my sermon for this past Sunday and I usually record it in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm by Wednesday, I write and then I record it the next morning. And then, so then I, whatever edits need to happen, we can do that Thursday afternoon. Uh, and so that's kind of my rhythm by three 30 on Thursday, I'm still writing, uh, because the last five minutes of my sermon, I just, I did not feel, I didn't feel good about it. Uh, I don't, what, what's the takeaway, right. <laughs> you know, like, what, what, what then are we now to do? Like I, and I could not in my mind come up with anything that felt practical to tell our congregation. Like I wanted to say, all right, here's this, here's this. Now here's what we're going to do. And I couldn't come up with it. And yeah. I, and I was editing and re-editing and changing. And because in my own soul, I just, I, I was still processing the pain of the events as well. But I also realized that there's not one thing we can do. There's no, 
there's no one answer that all the churches just need to do this one thing. You've got to get in on the individual level and hold people in love and to, and, and realize that what is be able to see and critique what is evil, what is not, but then also respond in a way that is love. And that feels esoteric. It it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel practical enough. And so it, you know, that becomes a, a very real challenge, I think, for the church. All right, I'll stop talking. Yeah, no, that was great. And so many good things. I think that's part of what we wrestled with as as uh, I have talked with my own church. Um, the temptation is to want to sort of go big or go home uh, in terms of, you know, how do we solve this right now? But it really is you know, a lifelong process of relationship by relationship, conversation by conversation, holding, uh, you know, yeah, people. Why is it that we think we need to solve it right now? Or, or the ego of that, <laughs> of like, all right, I've been on the sidelines for, you know, decades now, but all right, now that it's affected me, <laughs> right. let, let me now begin the reflection process that comes up with the one solution that's going to fix it all. As if we've got, you know, the magic, ring from Mordor that's going to uh, allow us to to rule them all as if we've been holding the secret in us at all times like that is that is a a, a really e- egoic mindset that right. okay now that it's affected the white church now let us pontificate <laughs> together uh, yeah. where have we you know and so the that's the self critique where have we been this has been a this has been a centuries long fight uh for people who have been uh, dehumanized and oppressed and that, you know, the, the church has, I'll say the white church has at times been, uh, helpful and hurtful to this. You know, this is, this is hundreds of years old. You know, I, I think about one of the things I reflected on personally was, you know, Abraham Lincoln's, uh, inaugural address. Uh, you know, it has become iconic. Uh, to the point where it etched in stone in our nation's capital that we will look to the better angels mm-hmm. of our world. And I, I just think about how powerful of a moment that we as history looks back on that speech and just says, that's truth. That points us somewhere. You know, the next four years after he made that address, we were in a civil war killing people over whether or not they were human or not, or whether we should enslave them or not, or own them or not. And so like words fall short, you know, even the best words from the best people, they fall short uh, because this has been going on for hundreds of years. uh, And uh, it, And so there is a part of me that's reflecting on this personally. Like if I'm now feeling wounded by this, good, Mm -hmm. it's it's time to feel it. Right. It's it's time to embrace that pain and to learn from it because we have been covering up a deep wound for too long. And it is definitely time that the white church lets air hit that wound because no healing has come from it in hundreds of years. And so there's, there's that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so part of the, what it means to move forward, I'm, I'm just trying to think of, you know, where do we go as churches? One, listening to uh, minority experiences, right? Uh, Listening to minority voices in a way that we as white churches haven't done uh, all too often in the past. Two, to use some of Mark Snipes' language, we've we have to build capacity to talk about hard things. Uh, I'd lo- you know, love to you know, hear what you think about how we do that. But I think that we have to learn to dialogue together before we are in these acute moments of crisis and stress. What do you, I mean, how do we, how do we begin to, what are practical steps you would recommend for a church uh, to take moving forward? That this is it, it really is hard. I, I think I want to to name a reality is that I think a lot of people have the illusion that the uh, historic white church in the community can magically flex a muscle that's going to it's going to fix some stuff. And I, I think that 
one of the, the real exposures over the last several years for me is that, that we, we do not actually, as a, um, I'm saying collectively, as a white, moderate, progressive, Baptist entity, we do not have as loud of a microphone as our egos think. Uh, most people just really don't care what we have to say. Uh, because we have wounded them on a personal level too over the years for whatever capacity that is because historically we have we have dodged and blamed the victim for for too long to the point where our voice really is irrelevant in in, in the town square uh more than likely the people listening to this podcast that is true for their congregation mm-hmm. uh, and so whatever words you think need to be spoken right now they don't need to come from you Hmm. they need to come from the oppressed and what you need to do is listen (laughs) and uh, create space for to and opportunities for people who are oppressed to speak Uh, the chances are the people in our position are not the oppressed i'm not i'm not the oppressed here right uh, as as the senior pastor of a of, of, of an affluent baptist congregation uh, within the community. And I, I know that. Um, so I, I don't need to rush in like a white knight and to feel like that I'm going to just, I'm going to speak words of truth and that's going to be what my role is. So everyone sit down and listen to me stand and talk. Uh, I, I need to hear, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, it's kind of dated now, but there is a very, very, very good book called the body keeps the score. I don't know uh-huh. if, you, if you've ever heard of that. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's definitely kind of more of a clinical psychological book. Uh, and it helps people understand that, you know, you're, and this is Enneagram language too. So one of the, the centers is the gut body center, uh, which a nine would, would be, is that your, like your body keeps the score. Uh, it, it feels the wounds. Now your mm-hmm. mind may turn itself off from listening to that divine intelligence of the body it may not feel anymore. You may shut yourself off from your heart and your emotions, but that's not, your body is a center of intelligence that keeps the score. Uh, and these, these generations that pass uh, by uh, where they have been oppressed, uh, where they have been uh, humiliated or dehumanized, that, that, that evil, is is worn and felt within the body uh and uh i have a four-year-old daughter and we one of the books that she got for christmas is called ruby found a worry it's a kid's book uh and little ruby uh is going on with her day and is doing just fine and then she realizes that she has a worry uh, but nobody can see it so she hides it and she pretends it's not there but it keeps getting bigger and bigger and it blocks her view and it takes up space on the school bus and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then by the end of it, it's a short little cute book. By the end of it, she meets another little boy who also has a worry and they mm-hmm. talk about their worries. And then magically the worry gets smaller until it disappears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a beautiful little kid's book. So much truth in it that we have got to create space for people to, to talk and to share and, the role of, of our non-oppressed, you know, white Baptist churches that are historical within the context that it's in, they, what we can do is create space to listen. Mm-hmm. So people can share what the score is that they feel viscerally in their bodies, or they feel in their, in, in the, the dynamic of the culture and context in which they are living. We have got to create space for people to share those stories. So, you know, if pastors don't have, if they do not have a network of other community pastors in which uh, they are, you know, just affiliated with, it is time, that's where you need to start. Go make friends, take the next other pastor out to coffee, or at least send them an email in the midst of a pandemic to let them know that, that you are uh, friendly and that you want, you would like to get to know them in their context and what their story is. And I think, what we can do for our church is, you know, in my context, I'm thinking about our sermon series of loving your neighbor. You know, one of the easiest ways to love your neighbor is to give them space to, to share, hmm. you know, what, you know, 
what it, what is it that they've been holding and 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 hurting from and to listen and uh, that may be the most important thing we can do right now is to listen hmm. that's great yeah thank you so much i i was sorry i'm you know i the way my mind works sometimes you know stories and narratives interject so i think i answered your question yeah absolutely i think you know we create a culture in churches too, where we can have hard conversations where we, I'm, I'm thinking about some of my own experiences uh, in, in a previous congregation where we moved through a, an, a different, but, you know, also politically charged conversation as a congregation. And we tried hard to avoid us versus them language, you know, tried to, create space for people to share authentically about what they were feeling and listen. We, we had um, in home, we called them dessert and dialogue discussions. We trained the facilitators and said, here's what we want you to talk about. Look, we, we don't need to come to a place right now where we're going to vote on this specific uh, politicized issue. But what we need to do is to, create space for us to listen to one another and really begin to understand one another uh, and in a way that lays the groundwork so that when uh, the problem or the crisis does emerge, we're better equipped as a congregation to navigate it. Yeah. How'd it go? Great. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was a discussion around um, sexuality in the church and uh, did a good job of, um, creating capacity for the church to have that, that conversation before we, before we needed to have that conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think that brings up just another reality of church is that, you know, sometimes I think we assume that the church is that everyone in the church is on the same spiritual journey. And right. They're not, and they're not always uh, and the leadership of the church or the spirit of the church may be wanting to move in a particular direction that not everyone's on board with. Mm. And, you know, the best Baptist thing you can do is wish them well. Let that's them know right. they, they have space, you know, next time they're around, come back. But, that's right. Yeah, not demonize them or villainize yeah. them on the way out of the door. I really appreciated what you said earlier about, you know, sort of not caricaturizing, uh, you know, those people that you might be opponents with, like all all Trump supporters are like this or all Democrats are like this or whatever. Yeah, that's the easy way, you yeah. know, to... Uh, it, it's too simple. The world is too complex. People are too complex uh, to to for simple, ready answers and to lump everyone in. Uh, and to, that is that is that is silly. Uh, we don't we don't have the church and humans and spirituality doesn't have time for that level of. Uh, I mean that's childish to to lump everybody into that. And we've got to move beyond that. And so I'm. I've got a, a person in my church. I've heard him say that identity politics is uh, is kind of the root of evil. Hmm. And I think I agree with him to a point. I mean, I think he definitely has a point that you know, identity politics really is a loaded phrase. And I get that. But just the whole concept that there is this kind of underlying belief that if you are to be Republican, you have to be Republican about everything hmm. or cancel culture is going to kick you out. Right. And you, you can't be, uh, they can't have compounded thoughts here. You are, you're all or nothing. Right. Go big or go home kind of thing. And so this is what it means to be Republican. This is what it means to be Democrat. And you, uh, you're all in, uh, and that's too simplistic. Um, but it is also becoming, uh, I think politically, a, a a real concern, at least of mine, but I think a real concern that we are we're kind of watching identity politics take hold mm. of of Congress. I mean, our our last Supreme Court judge, and uh, she right. was the first Supreme Court justice to ever be completely confirmed by one party over the other, hundred percent Republican, zero percent Democrats, wow. and she wins first time. It was never a bipartisan justice. That I mean, that's identity politics at its core, at the worst kind of level that we I have to be against you because you have this label. I mean, that is uh, dangerous. Yeah, because that that creates uh, that creates uh, tribal mentality 
that is willing to inflict evil and and to masquerade it as good. Uh, and that is really becomes dangerous when we create complex situations and name them as so simplistic. Uh, and that it is scary. Uh, I, I had, this is a, a, a much longer story for another day, but I was, uh, I was asked to go into a federal prison and to speak to one of the rioters in Charlottesville in 2017, who was arrested for creating, uh, the, uh, uh, unite the right rally right. in Charlottesville. And so I, I was asked to go in his, you know, the parents had asked their lawyer to get a pastor to go and try to talk sense into him. And I was picked. And so I get to go sit in a, you know, in, in the federal prison for, I talked to him for over two hours. Uh, and so it was just it, this guy and it, I would love to demonize him. Yeah. Uh, and I would love to say, this is the manifestation of what evil looks like. Um, I cannot do that. Uh, he's, a, he's a complex human being who, well, that when he was 17 years old, got into a tribal mentality group of these other guys who were lifting weights together. He was a loner, and they gave him purpose. And, he, and this was their purpose. Uh, and it meant the world to him to be loved and beloved by this group that had a particular ideology that that uh, that manifested in him uh, starting at age 17. Um, that, that's the I mean, every one of us want to be loved at the core of who this guy was. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be known and loved. That's not evil, but it it took on an evil because I would argue he never developed the ability to self-actualize. I'm hurting others. If you can't, if you can't see that in yourself, then you're headed down a terrible path. Like I'm, I can't wound others. I can't kill in the name of Jesus. It breaks the 10 commandment. Like this is a moral issue. So this guy was not a good person, but he's not inherently evil either. And so I, I think what we've done in identity politics is we've, we have allowed the other group to become evil and that is too simplistic and it's right. not fair. And, yeah. and it really creates a, an inability to be bipartisan, which is, is dangerous. So again, so I think when my parishioner who says that identity politics is the root of evil, I, I see what he's saying. Yeah. Abs- yeah. Uh, I was uh, reading Barbara Brown Taylor, her recent book, Holy Envy, uh, this past week, and she quotes um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, his book, Not in God's Name, in which he talks about religious violence. And he talks about um, the desire for for to be, you know, part of a group and, and suggests that uh, that us versus them mentality is is uh, does more to form a group than anything that the group can be in and of itself. When you have a, an opponent to direct your energy and it strengthens group cohesion. I, I couldn't help but think of that in light of what, what you just mentioned and also the January 6th uh, violence. Yeah. Who, that is uh Emil Durkheim. Yeah. Uh, the, the, and the scapegoat mentality. Yes. Yeah. Like that, you know, if two opposing views can team up together, if they can find a common enemy. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so if we can yeah. scapegoat somebody, I mean, literally it's why Jesus was killed. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, the, so the political leaders of Judaism could maintain power and can, I mean, they were willing to go into, uh, you know, into a relationship with Rome and to create a common enemy. We will both do better if Jesus is dead. And so, yes, <laughs> Jesus yeah. was killed. And I mean, that's, I guess that is the underbelly of what you're talking about. And uh, is that it, it, it leads to death yeah. uh, of, you know, of people that you have demonized unfairly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, trying to be mindful of our time as, as uh, we are winding down here. Um, it, it seems appropriate to talk about Jesus as we wrap up. And of course we've been hitting lots of, um, you know, theological topics all along the way, but uh, yeah, of course, Jesus absorbed religious and political violence into his own body and was unwilling to respond to the violence of the empire with 
with the violence of his own followers. And I, you know, he, to, to the end loved his enemies. It sounds trite to say in some ways, but that's who we're called to follow, right? We're not people of violence. We're people of the way of love uh, and life. It have to be. I, it have to be. I think that's beautifully said. So you mentioned, I think, a couple of words, but it, it, it reminds me of Richard Rohr, uh, and he ha- runs the Center for Action and Contemplation in, right. in Albuquerque. And uh, I, I have heard him say, he has a talk called The Spiral of Violence. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it was, uh, I think, it took years to flesh it out, but he has a book that came out last year uh, called what, we, what Do We Do With Evil?, Uh, And it is uh, he processes violence. And and what I'm hearing you say is that the uh, the church has right and wrong. We have focused 99 percent of our attention on the individual sins of the world Mm -hmm. Uh, and that we sin or that, that people, you know, they. They they live immoral lives, and we just nitpick this list of individual sins that if you could just you know seek forgiveness for, if you could repent oh, yeah. of those sins, then you will be a better person. God will bless you, and the world all will be right in the world. And we should just all repent of our individual sins. And, and he just kind of jokingly in this talk uh, says that. We have been giving moral sermons for 2,000 years, and we are less moral today than we've ever been. Like, those sermons aren't working. Uh, And his argument is because it does not reach the root of the sin. That individual sin is not the ultimate problem. And then he uses, uh, Pope John Paul II uh, came up with the phrase structural sin. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and that what the church needs to create space and, and a narrative around is what we need to help open people's eyes to is that the underbelly of individual sin is a structure of evil. Uh, and that is, I, I am deeply convicted by this, is that the system that we live in perpetuates individual sins. Uh, And so if you think lawlessness is the evil, we just need to stop breaking laws. Well, the system forces people to live in an oppressed situation that forces them to feel as if this is their only means of operating. So the system creates the individual, you know, outburst or whatever, or individual sin. What is the church doing to name the structural evil that exists? And this is where I think nobody wants to go. Because uh, we we're going to have to reckon with with white supremacy and privilege, uh, and we and the conversation has to be had. This is where it gets really difficult, though, because not all pastors are equipped to one name self critique the system that we live in. Uh, it you know we we live in a capitalistic society, and yet one of the moral uh, you know, moors that we rail against is greed. Right. Uh, but the system <laughs> perpetuates greed. Right. And so we say don't be greedy, but then we support a system that encourages greed. And so we never talk about the system. We only talk about the individual sin. And that is, it's deeply problematic uh, and for the church. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is this is a framework that I've kind of realized that this is not an easy solution. We are not out of this. It's going to take the rest of our lives in order to keep processing. But I think one of the roles of profit is that we have to be people who develop the capacity to self-critique the system. Mm -hmm. But do it in a way that doesn't make people feel like you're a crazy radical or that you're, you know, that you, you hate who they are. But you have got to bring people along because we are never going to eradicate evil in the world until we are able to change the system. The system perpetuates the individual sin. Right. That, that is that is where my mind and my soul is going right now. And so I'm, you know, that's that's a lifetime of work that I'm in, I'm ready to invest in. Uh, yeah. And so it, the, you know, that I can talk more about that, but I'll stop. Yeah. No, it's good work. We need, we need to wrap up, but um, 
I'm so grateful for your time and talking to us today and your wisdom and sharing. For me as new pastor of church here in in Williamsburg, this is invaluable. And my hunch is that for folks listening in, it's going to be invaluable as well. It is a, a, a lifetime of work. Uh, and I would say a calling, right? As, as pastors and as people of faith that we're called to, to be peacemakers, uh, but not in a way that just sort of sweeps conflict under the rug, but yeah, that's but, peacekeeping. That's we're right. Called to, we're called to be peacemakers, right? Keepers. And I think that's a, the good delineation. Yes. We are called to create shalom to, you know, on the earth, which in, encompasses justice and love. Yeah. And, and so, um, but can't thank you enough for this conversation. Um, certainly rooting for you and your congregation as you navigate this and the pandemic. And we'll look forward to being in touch and, and hear how it's going. Well, blessings to you, Art. Thank you so much. And to the people who do listen uh, to this podcast that, I mean, I hope they know there's not one right next thing to do. There, there definitely is a wrong thing to do. Let's just not do that. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Do one of the right things, whatever it is in your context. Yes. Pick one thing and, and push Let's ahead. Do it. Yes. That's right. Thank you, Barrett, so much. Thank and thanks you, for Art. our podcast listeners for listening in. Take care. God bless. You too.